Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Mary Cowdor. I'm Professor Emeritus of Global Governance at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My main research is on conflict and war and also on civil society. Uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about human security as a way of addressing the problems of war and conflict. Uh, and I think it's become more relevant than ever. Uh, in this podcast, I explain a little bit why it applies to Ukraine and should be adopted by NATO. This is Wojciech Przybylski, Editor-in-Chief of Visegrad Insight. And together with me, there is uh, Miles Maftian, Editorial Director at Visegrad Insight. And we're both uh, going to comment uh, the key developments uh, that, uh, that are Europe-wide developments uh, with particular flavor and angle uh, on Central Europe and we believe is important. So why don't we start from, uh, from the case of Romania and Bulgaria and the, the, the vote on Schengen uh, area? Yeah, I think the best way to phrase this is the backlash over the Schengen veto, right? So I think what uh, the immediate reaction that that came about was you saw both Romania and Austria officials who were essentially already saying that there's going to be consequences against Austria if they're actually going to veto the ascension process. Um, the, the prime minister, Galadonev, he actually threatened countermeasures on Monday. Um, so a, a lot has been happening just even on this political level. But it seems like a backlash after the vote, but they were not eventually, the, you could say they were not successful, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the successful party here. Croatia already knew in advance uh, that they have to do these threats prior to in order for something like this not to essentially happen, right? So what did they, what did Croats uh, actually do? What, what do we know? Well, I think the what a lot of Romanians have said and pointing to the Croats is, is that they actually successfully lobbied prior to this, right? So you do the work behind the scenes and that's kind of the issue when it comes to Romania and what Romanian analysts have said that their diplomatic game, not even just in Brussels, but also domestically at home within their own political factions and also obviously in Austria where you, you clearly see that uh, I don't know precisely what the amount is, but something like 90% of, of, of products that are in some of the stores are actually Austrian in a sense, right? So they have the capabilities to actually approach this in a more mm -hmm. threatening way. Um, but of course, they, they didn't do it. And you can't, of course, Romanian analysts and editorialists, oftentimes they blame themselves or their country, right, over the things that... That um, that go wrong, but obviously in this case they're blaming Austria. Yeah, well, which uh, I think there is a case to be made that there was a political decision, there was a domestic agenda of the UFOP, the the EPP party, right. that um, that was afraid of uh, mounting up uh, mounting up social. Um, discontent with their policies, as Austria has seen already this year, about 100,000 uh, immigration uh, files being sued for immigration registrations being being um, uh, processed by the Austrian government, and that uh, leads a potential backlash on the right right wing side. Uh, UFOP is most afraid, while it's losing in the opinion polls, 
that the beneficiary of, of such uh, emotion will be FBO, the, the far right or the radical right of the of Austria. So they took a domestic, uh, domestically driven decision and later signaled that there would be, you know, open for uh, some uh, another tabling of, of the Schengen expansion. But then we never know if another country would not do the same because uh, election would be coming and so on. So uh, at least uh, ever since Bulgaria has put a bilateral issue as a and inscribed it in the Acquis Comintere of, of the European Union, we are seeing uh, a number of these events, like here, the case in point, that EU is, um, EU's agenda is being from time to time and uh, increasingly or alarmingly uh, more often than, than we would like to, being hijacked by the domestic agenda and uh, bilateralization of the EU affairs is is a worrying trend yeah and it tells you actually the the instruments that that are allowed to be used for this and it's this major consequence that's happening for the the free european democratic security and what that is is it's the power of the veto so you take the hungarian custom here right and you essentially uh you can see what really lies ahead in terms of the european politics and security and good that you mentioned that that's our next point on the agenda hungarian veto has been bypassed this weekend uh the veto has been bypassed in regards to the 18 billion uh um, uh, support to to ukraine which would be funded by debt which viktor orban said he would not allow to be funded by debt as the country it itself is uh, is going into a massive economic and public finance problem, not receiving yet the EU funds and not likely to receive them in a, in a near future. And also mounting up inflation, record high uh, the, at, the, uh, at the time of, of, of this recording going up uh, above 20%. Um, recent uh, lack of oil at the gas station and then uh, skyrocketing prices of the oil after the government released uh, the price cap on on oil and still no no oil inside that puts uh, the government in trouble and uh, a lot of scrutiny uh, would be expected from from the government if it's you know um, from the public opinion side if it's if it's looking at um, additional spending for ukraine but that left aside we are trying to explain part of the economic logic of, of this government there is a clear security uh, or geopolitics uh, agenda that Hungary follows. And they, by me, by saying geopolitics, I mean the type of logic that Central European states are really bad at, but still they have some leaders that follow and they adhere to the Russian narrative of, of geopolitic, ge- geopolitics and the big power competition um, in the region. And Viktor Orban is definitely a buy-in. He has been... He has been following this logic. So blocking Ukraine's access to funds and suggesting that uh, he may take a decision as soon as possible, but actually not too soon, about Finland or or Sweden only shows that he is continuously serving a long-term Russian interest, be it for um, some secret deals we don't know under the table, be it by... Uh, simply being um, harassed and also compromised, perhaps through one of the many things that Russians do very well, which is compromise, uh, some secret mm-hmm. dirt that they would threaten to to throw at uh, at a given politician, 
or for um, any other calculation that may include also very, very targeted uh, ideological messaging uh, that the party has been um, uh, good at also in the Fidesz party in Hungary has been good at for the past uh, years. But not knowing that, we can only assume and uh, we can assume that there is an economic logic and then there is a very strong case for Hungary being too, too close to uh, the enemies of Europe and NATO while being uh, EU and NATO country. Which, finally, as we learned from an interview that Philip Fritz has conducted with the Polish ambassador to Berlin, is also also uh, raising alarm flags uh, in Warsaw. And as the ambassador said, we are in a family, but even in families there are big quarrels. Um, so, so that already indicates in the diplomat. If that is the diplomatic language, right. that indicates the level of tensions between Budapest and Warsaw today. And at the same time, he mentioned that Poland has changed the ambassador to Budapest to bring more assertive position of Warsaw vis-a-vis -vis these big dilemmas of you know, geopolitics versus international uh, order and solidarity. And he mentioned that it, the ambassador is hopeful, hopefully successful in bringing Hungary on the path of Euro-Atlantic solidarity. I mean, no ambassador has ever been successful in bringing a country direction exactly. about it, but this is clearly flagging that Poland has a problem with, with Hungary. And that uh, projects, of course, to, to, to other clashes on, on the voting in the EU. Uh, we are having early reports that Poland may be now leading or moving ahead a bit in negotiations on the recovery resilience plan with negotiating with the commission on on how the government will uh, basically fulfill the milestones but uh, save the face and, uh, and get get the EU money as soon as possible to right to the commission signing the operational guidelines that was the that was the story from uh, uh, Polish journalist Polish radio journalist uh, from that uh, from from Monday's morning. And um, at the same time, Hungary seems to be nowhere near. Now, the real test will be, you know, uh, votes that will uh, decide, will, will there and should there be a moment coming uh, that the council votes uh, would be counted because right now they're trying to postpone it and Poland become more angry at Hungary because of the, the situation with Ukraine. Seeing no other means, Poland may take an opportunity um, at distancing itself from Hungary, uh, not just symbolically, but really through through voting and uh, giving uh, giving Viktor Orban a clear signal that he needs to change uh, because uh, Poland will not tolerate uh, that kind of behavior. So I think this this shows an interesting dynamics uh, also in regards to European policy, but but security overall, uh, especially of uh, security of the region. But it doesn't show a clear leadership uh, from Poland, as we would probably like to see from a country of that size and um, and strategic clarity when it comes to Russia, but so muddled <laughs> into you know in in, in other uh, in other cases. So even so, even though we have President Duda coming to visit Mr. Uh, President Steinmeier uh, to talk over and soothe. Uh, the relationship after the big Patriot missile blunder, um, we will we will definitely still uh, be in a search for Central European 
a security leader because Poland for now is merely a hub of, of security, transportation, log logistics, very important, but it's, it's, it's not um, helping to bring others on, on board on, on, on the same page. It's not, it's not showing that it's leading, it's, it's rather uh, adjusting. Yeah, and overall, it's showing you the different dimensions of security that we are constantly attempting to monitor. Mm -hmm. uh, not only democratic security, but also who um, who Malik, uh, our podcast editor, will be uh, interviewing uh, Mary Caldor in, in the next interview. This is precisely the other element of uh, the other side of this, the, the human security element there. Yeah, indeed, the human security element is something we do focus on. Uh, uh, an alert, spoiler alert, uh, a bit of self-promotion. On the 13th of December, we are um, organizing a conference uh, on uh, NATO 2030, what's security for Central Europe, question mark, in partnership with uh, NATO and uh, Center for Individual Private Entrepreneurship, uh, focusing on all these non-hardware security elements right. um, of, of NATO. This conference is in person in Warsaw, and I don't think we're doing a stream. We are not. Indeed. So, But recordings will come. So recordings will come and, and do subscribe in order to know more and be invited to the next events like that. That's all from our senior editors, Wojtek Przybylski and Miles Mafti. And now I, Malik Banat, the podcast editor at VI, invite you to listen in on a important discussion surrounding human security with Mary Calder, a professor emeritus of global governance at the London School of Economics, as well as the director of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit. Hello, Mary. It's great to have you here. Hello. Very nice to join you. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing um, to chat with us today about uh, human security. This Tuesday, which actually as we record is tomorrow, Visegrad Insight is hosting a policy debate in Warsaw on the future vision of the North Atlantic Alliance for 2030, and more importantly, talking about elements of security that are often overlooked, such as human security, your area of expertise, and it will be delivered from the perspective of civil society here in Central Eastern Europe. And just last Saturday, we happened to mark the 74th year of the International Human Rights Day. And uh, the concept of human security that you have extensively written about merges human rights with peace to be indivisible and in a way codependent. Um, this is, applies in reference to our global community, as you say that Europeans can no longer feel safe when human security is undermined in other parts of the world. And I think to get a better sense of what human security is for our listeners, it is equally important to know what it is not. And as you write, the term can be manipulated by great powers to legitimate the use of military force, as occurred with uh, NATO intervention in Kosovo and Russia's 2008 invasion of Georgia. So according to you, what defines the true boundaries of human security? Well, I think human security is about saving all lives, which means that classic military approaches to, to human security uh, actually themselves violate human rights. I think this was the problem in Kosovo. I very much supported the intervention in Kosovo because 
uh, the Serbs were conducting a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the Albanians, um, which uh, that they were forcing them to leave Kosovo and they were the majority population and something needed to be done to stop this. Um, but the problem with doing it from the air, which is what NATO did with bombing, is that you risk the very lives of the people you're trying to save. In fact, actually, they did kill some refugees and they also killed not that many, two or 3,000, but two or 3,000 lives is a lot. And I think it undermined the legitimacy of the Western intervention, but more to the point, because it was effectively a sort of war, it left Kosovo very deeply divided. Um, Milosevic used the cover of bombing actually to speed up ethnic cleansing, and it left the Albanian and Serb community deeply divided. So the question is, what we're really talking about is an approach to human security that is in itself conducted according to the rules of human security. And I have one little rule of thumb. I mean, if you take the laws of war, international humanitarian law, then according to international humanitarian law, the killing of civilians is sometimes permitted, provided it's necessary for uh in order to gain a military objective and pro provided it's proportional to the gain that is expected. Now, human security, this is not the case. It's sort of the other way around. What you would say with human security is that the killing of enemies is permitted, provided it's necessary to protect civilians. And that's a huge turnaround. So when NATO says they've neglected human security. I think what often is not realized is that human security, if NATO seriously were to adopt human security, it would really mean a fundamental change in the way they do military operations. Interestingly enough, I think some people do realize that. Um, I think Ukraine, the Ukraine war was in a way a wake-up call because NATO planning is really based on the assumption that there are going to be, there's going to be a major war in Europe in which millions of people die. And suddenly people began to realize that's completely unacceptable. And so we have to think of a different way of doing military operations so they don't lead to escalation. And of course, that is the dilemma very much in Ukraine that NATO faces. On the one hand, everyone wants Ukraine to win. On the other hand, everyone is terribly afraid that this could lead to a global world war, which could lead to the end of human beings. You also write about returning to a European security system based on the Helsinki principles. And I find that interesting because mm, notably there has been a crisis of faith in the institutions like the Organization for Security and Cooperation, uh, the OSCE. Uh, and when, when talking about the need to adapt institutions to the global present, uh, how do you respond to proposals about integrating Russia into the European security architecture that 
will emerge and is emerging? Well, I think it was a huge mistake not to integrate Russia immediately after 1991. Um, I think it was very clear that although NATO offered a close partnership with Russia, it was not willing to accept Russian membership in NATO. And the trouble with NATO is that it was inherited from the Cold War. It was a war-fighting machine. So NATO objectively, in a way, needs is can be seen to be fighting an enemy. Let me make it clear that I don't think NATO expansion is a cause of Russian aggression. Um, I think it provided Putin with a pretext, but I think Russian aggression had much more to do with the nature of the Putin regime, this criminalized kleptocracy that was really dependent on war and violence to remain in power. I think that's what it was all about. And so I don't think NATO expansion is an explanation for the war. Nevertheless, I do think had many of us hoped when the Cold War came to an end that NATO and the Warsaw Pact would both be dissolved and a new security arrangement with teeth, which NATO has, uh, would be established based on the Helsinki principles. And I think it's a tragedy that that didn't happen. I think some of what we're seeing might have been avoided. Maybe not. I mean, it depend would have depended on the internal development of Russia. So I suppose in terms of a new security system, I think Russia could only be a member if Putin was removed and if he was replaced by a democratic government. Um, and I think Putin might be removed. I think that's a likely outcome of the Ukraine war. But I'm not sure how democratic uh, his successors will be. We have to wait and see. But it does require certainly a different policy towards Russia. On the what, what made Helsinki different from NATO? So Helsinki, in a way, was the forerunner of human security. We didn't use the term human security in those days. Um, as you know, human security is about the security of individuals and it is about uh, protecting people, not only from violent threats, but from economic, environmental and other types of threats, from natural disasters, from famines and so on. And, of course, it included defence against the crime of aggression, the crime of genocide, crimes of humanity. What the Helsinki Agreement contained was what were called three baskets. And the first basket was the territorial status quo. It was security in Europe. And it was the idea that crimes of aggression are no longer allowed. The second basket was economic and social cooperation, which I think was really important. And the third basket was human rights. 
And they all were meant to be indivisible. You know, Russia was only get economic and social cooperation um, in order, if it were, to respect human rights. Of course, the Russians and East European governments at that time didn't take the commitment to human rights seriously. They, their constitutions contained on paper commitments to human rights, but nobody, um, nobody actually put them into practice. But what it did do was to provide an instrument for the opposition in Eastern Europe. That was the beginning of the Polish intellectuals and later solidarity of uh, Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia of the democratic opposition in Hungary. And so this commitment, the fact that their governments had committed themselves to human rights gave people an instrument to campaign for human rights. So I think this was a very different idea of security. Security was to be achieved through cooperation and through respect for human rights and not through the non-use of force for territorial purposes. Um, and I think that was what Gorbachev meant by common security. Our common European home was his term. Olaf Palmer used the term common security. Uh, we can only be safe if we're safe together. Um, maybe the human rights element was less emphasized in common security and common European home. But for my purposes, I think it's really difficult to have common security without human rights because it leads to the kind of adventures that Putin or Xi Jinping in China are involved in. Mm. So the question is, can you do this kind of Helsinki approach without actually including the problem countries, namely Russia and China? My feeling is that it's a discussion that many of us had actually before the end of the Cold War. There was a feeling that the arms race really sustained the Cold War because of the acquisition on both sides of threatening weapons. And so a sort of Helsinki approach would obviously be very defensive and would have a hard military defense of territory, but it would try not to be offensive. And there's quite a lot of discussion about that in NATO. Uh, the idea is um, to what they call it deterrence by denial and by resilience, because resilience, you know, there's a great deal of concern about what are known now as hybrid threats, misinformation, cyber attacks, uh, energy, uh, weaponizing energy. So resilience is the answer to all of that, but also an effective conventional defense without necessarily having a major offensive retaliatory capability. That's the sort of idea. Well, of course, we're nowhere there. I mean, both Britain and the United States are modernizing their nuclear weapons program. What we need is a new set of arms control agreements. But I definitely think we need to start thinking in these terms. And I don't think there's anything wrong with parts of them. You don't have to wait for the whole world to accept 
these kinds of principles for parts of the world to accept those principles because they do make a world war much less likely. They do rule out escalation. And if you think about Ukraine, I think if Putin had really known how effective the Ukrainian defense would be, I have to say I didn't think Putin would invade myself because I thought the Ukrainians would put up a very effective defense. If you think that NATO could put up a similarly effective defense, uh, that's you know, that is a very effective form of deterrence and in a way a much better form of deterrence uh, than threatening to destroy the other side, which escalates tensions and leads to polarization. That being said, you, you mentioned that the current security environment we find ourselves in is um, very much different despite the risk reminding us of the past Cold War, but, uh, you know, the rise of non-state actors, as you mentioned, hybrid warfare and disinformation. If we talk about the strategic concept and we say that it is important to integrate human security as the core focus, um, what are some of the biggest hesitancies for allies not to have human security as the core focus? I think there isn't a hesitancy, more there are differences about how people understand human security. So human security in the NATO context is understood as a whole list of things. It's um, protection of civilians, it's women, peace and security, it's uh, protection of cultural heritage, It's building integrity, which means being against corruption. It's dealing with gender violence. So there's a whole list of things which count as human security. And actually, those things already exist in international humanitarian law. It's about taking international humanitarian law very seriously. And as NATO discovered in Afghanistan, you know, If you you actually, it's actually very difficult to achieve your objective if you're killing civilians. And nobody in Afghanistan thinks you're on their side if you go around bombing them and doing night raids and so on. Um, so you know, it's partly a tactical thing that NATO is more effective than, say, Russia because Russia deliberately violates international humanitarian law. Russia deliberately kills civilians. It deliberately destroys cultural heritage. It deliberately engages in sexual violence, in looting, and all of these things. And so it's really about the legitimacy of NATO. So that's one way that people think about it. But to my mind, that's not enough. <laughs> I think human security is more than all these things. It's actually about this defensive, non-retaliatory approach. It's about it's a real fundamental change in how the military operate. It's about trying to dampen down violence rather than to win. It's it's being defensive and protective and dampening down. And that means that actually the role of the military is much more like policing than like the classic 
military approach. And I'm not sure. I think some people in NATO understand it, but I think there's a debate going on at this very moment as to what it really means. And uh, does this debate foreclude the all of society? So like, can we say there is an all of society approach to human security? And if yes, what does this entail for civil military cooperation? Yes, I think it does involve all of society. And I was very struck. I mean, it does mean that it's about protecting people from economic threats as well as from military threats. Uh, and it's about protecting civil society and so on. And I think that's something the military do seem to understand. Um, I think one of the interesting, uh, you know, I was interviewing the British military about human security, and I asked them whether what they whether human security applied to the Ukraine war, because you could say the Ukrainians are basically protecting their civilians. That's what they're doing, and so you could say this is a you know, they're killing in order to protect civilians. So you could say this was human security. And an interesting point that was raised by the British military was that um, they were worried about the economic situation of ordinary Russians, that uh, ordinary, you know, Putin is responsible for this war, not ordinary Russians. And we do need to think about the human security of ordinary Russians as well as the human security of Ukrainians. So that uh, that was kind of interesting and people understand that. But I think this holistic approach, I mean, we've focused very much on the major fault lines on the Ukraine-Russia war on NATO in our conversation so far. Um, but of course, I have been thinking about human security in relation, I wouldn't so much say hybrid wars. I mean, the term hybrid threat seems to me to, I use it really to mean uh, non-military threats. But in the case of new, what I call new wars, where you have numerous armed groups um, and the wars go on for a very long time, um, then I think human security is also an incredibly important approach that has to cover economic, political, as well as military aspects. And of course, there's always a danger that the Ukraine war will come, turn into this kind of war. I mean, I suspect that's Putin's aim. He can't bear the thought of democracy in Ukraine because it really threatens his own position in Russia. But I think a long war like Syria or Libya or Congo uh, would be fine for him. And in fact, maybe his aim is to turn this into a long war that is never ending and that involves more and more non-state actors and more and more chaos. And so I think we need also to think about human security as an international approach to trying to deal with these kinds of conflicts, which up till now the international community hasn't done. I mean, in the 1990s, there were efforts, but they were quite problematic. They were better than no efforts, but nevertheless, they were problematic because they weren't really based on human security. They were based much more on a war logic than a human security log logic. And when I say that, what I mean is they were based on the assumption that to achieve peace, you make a deal with between the warring parties. But if the warring parties are illegitimate, 
then what the deal does is to entrench those warring parties and entrench their position. In a way, you could say that's what Minsk did in terms of the Russian position in eastern Ukraine. But, you know, if you look at somewhere like Bosnia, all sides are illegitimate. And it has just allowed those illegitimate people to continue to conduct all kinds of predatory, criminalized activities. So thinking about how you deal with these wars, what role the international community can play in dampening down violence is a very, is a comprehensive uh, economic, political, as well as military or possibly police uh, type.